scripture reading this morning is Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, as we continue in our series through the letter to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, the Apostle Paul writes, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Well, we noted last week in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, uh, how Paul encouraged the Christians in Philippi to stand firm together against the opposition that was coming from outside of the church. This was opposition that was mainly in the form of persecution from the Roman officials. Paul himself was feeling the weight of this opposition to the gospel from those outside the church because, as we've noted, He wrote this epistle while he was imprisoned in Rome. He was imprisoned for preaching the gospel. And so Paul writes here and he encourages the church to stand together, to support one another. Because the assurance is that the church of Christ will endure. That though the gates of hell come against the church, they will not conquer the church. We have a sure foundation And it's a sure foundation that cannot be moved. And now, uh, Paul in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, speaks about another danger. Uh, Not the danger that's outside of the church, but this is a danger that is uh, within the church. He is now, as we'll see, he's now talking about the unity that the church needs to have uh, from within. Uh, I want you to think, of the example this morning of, of perhaps a bully on, on the playground. You know, I dealt with my fair share of bullies growing up. But imagine that uh, a bully comes around and, and he's picking on, on one of your siblings. And, you know, what do you do in that situation? Well, you need to stand with your brother and sister in that situation against that bully, right? So that when he comes around to trouble one of you, uh, he sees you all uh, united together. This involves standing together, side by side, against an opposing force that's coming against you. Uh, but, you know, if we take that scenario, we have to admit that it's not good if after standing together, united against that bully, uh, you then go home and you turn on each other as siblings, right? And you fight against each other. That's not true unity. Uh, And this was, in essence, the problem in Philippi. Um, They were, by the grace of God, they were enduring opposition from outside, uh, from the bullies. Uh, They were uh, united against the opposition that they were facing from Rome. But the Apostle Paul hints here at a problem that was now coming from within the church. Throughout this letter, Paul hints that he knows some of the members in the church are arguing 
with each other, um, and that there are tensions among them, and this is affecting the church. It's hurting the unity of the church. It was not, as we know, a perfect church. There's no such thing as a perfect church, but some of the problems in Philippi were uh, becoming known, not just within this church, but to others as well. Uh, in In chapter four, verse two, Paul, as we've noted, actually calls out two women in the church who were causing division. He says, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. And so Paul, in, in the passage of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, we might say that Paul now, in essence, is calling a family meeting. He's calling the church together, and he's saying, you are being bullied and opposed, and you know, you're standing together well against the opposition from without, against the Roman opposition, but now you need to stand united from within as well. You need to get along together as brothers and sisters. And, you know, what was true for the church in Philippi, this need to be united, to show unity, it is true of every church of Christ. And so the question this morning is, how do we achieve such unity as a church? I want to, in essence, say, let's call our own family meeting this morning and consider how we might seek greater unity as a church, as a church here in Southern California. We see in our passage this morning that we first need, in order to gain this unity, to understand the basis of our unity, knowing God and knowing one another. We need to understand the basis of our unity. As the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 2, verse 1, so if there is any encouragement in Christ any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Look at that verse as we consider it. I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul bases his appeal for church unity on our triune God. He refers to our, if you look again, encouragement in Christ, our comfort from love, and our participation in in the Spirit. He, again, bases our unity in our triune God. And some of you might be looking at that verse, and you might be asking, well, I see Christ there and the Spirit in these verses, but where is the Father? Well, if we compare this verse to uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14, uh, it's the verse that I use regularly as our benediction at the end of the service, you know, we can see some parallels. Uh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. And Paul says there the love of God. He is referring to the Father more specifically. So that every time you and I hear that benediction at the end of the service, you know what we're hearing is we are hearing the Trinitarian grace that we receive from God in our salvation. Because, loved ones, you know, we need to understand that it's not just the Son. It's not just Christ who saves us. But it is God the Father who, who chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. It's God the Son who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And, and it's God the Spirit who 
unites us to Christ and, and who applies all of Christ's benefits to us. See, our salvation is a Trinitarian grace. It's God, one God, in three persons, persons who are distinct, yet who are inseparable, who in unity work to accomplish our salvation. And so Paul, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, in our text this morning, he points us, you and me, to the unity in the Godhead. And he does so in order to show us, to show the church that we need to reflect this kind of unity, this kind of togetherness. This is why the Lord Jesus prayed for the church in his high priestly prayer. And as we consider that prayer this morning, notice how Jesus prays and he speaks of his relationship with the Father. And then he prays that those in his church will have that same kind of relationship with one another. Listen to John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So we hear that prayer of the Lord Jesus as he's interceding for our unity. We might ask, you know, he, he speaks of his unity with the Father, but what about the Spirit? Well, we know that the Spirit, too, reveals this unity because the Spirit takes all of the benefits of Christ and applies it to you, applies those benefits to you and to me. And so, loved ones, you see, the basis of our unity is, first of all, in our triune God, our triune God who calls us into fellowship with Him, fellowship that is by the Father's election, by the Son's redemption, and by... Uh, the Spirit's application of what the Son has accomplished. And this relationship that you and I have with God, that relationship establishes the relationship that we have with one another here in church this morning. Because as uh, the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, as you'll notice, he speaks about encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, the love of God the Father, participation in the Spirit, and then he mentions affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy. Now, this phrase can sometimes be translated uh, compassionate heart in other parts of the New Testament. And this refers to the Philippians' relationship with Paul. Paul uses this same phrase in Colossians chapter 3 when he talks about the relationships within the church. Colossians chapter 3, beginning of verse 12, Paul writes, Put on then, he's talking to church members, put on then as God's chosen one, ones holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. There's that phrase. Kindness, 
humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. So you see, friends, how clearly it's being explained to us that the basis of our unity is our knowing God and being known by him, being loved by him, and called into fellowship with him. And then that relationship that we have with God creates the relationship that you and I have together, that we have with one another, with one another as children together of the Father, as those who have been adopted into his family through Christ, and those who have been regenerated by the Spirit. See, it's important for us to see, friends, that you and I, you know, we don't create our unity with one another. God creates our unity together as a church. He has already established it. And you know what he does is he invites us into it by the preaching of the gospel. So that when we hear the word and and we are then graciously given faith, he calls us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He calls us out of the world and into his church because he has now established relationship with us and established that relationship that we have with one another. This is what uh, Phil Ryken gets at uh, in, in what I included on the inside cover of our bulletins. I'm going to read the quote there. He says, The communion of saints, the unity that we have together, is not something that we must create, but it's something that we receive as a gift of God's Spirit. God has given us to one another in love. Now, the communion that we have been given needs to be developed and maintained. We should become what we already are in Christ, living a life worthy of the calling that we have received. We, he says, we already are united in love. Now we must live out our unity until it becomes fully manifest. To that end, we must pray for ourselves the way that Paul prayed for the Thessalonians. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else. So we see here the basis of our unity. But then the question is, what does unity look like? The Apostle Paul answers this question in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And as we read that verse... We think about perhaps our secular culture, and in our secular culture, unity is now seen as uh, possible only if we ignore or deny our God-given differences. In our our culture, what it says is is that if you and I want to be united, if we want to live in unity, uh, we need to deny gender differences. Uh, We need to ignore race and ethnicity, and only then will we be able to completely live uh, truly 
united in a true unity. But, you know, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that true unity in the church is actually the result of us acknowledging our outward differences. All the while, confessing and living out the same faith together. It's not denying our differences, but it's acknowledging and confessing our same faith together. Because, loved ones, God made us who we are. He made us different. He made us male and female. He brought us together here at Grace from different nations, from different backgrounds. And God has given each of us different gifts and graces that we bring to this body of believers. And so our unity doesn't come from us ignoring our unique differences. Again, God-given differences. But our unity comes from standing upon our same confession, our same faith. This is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul notes three aspects of this shared faith that reveals our unity. We see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, that we are first to have the same mind, the same mind. This means that we are to have a certain mindset or attitude. You know, what Paul is referring here to is, is our convictions about the gospel. He calls us to have the same viewpoint. And this is one of the the great blessings that that we have in our Reformed tradition. The great blessing blessing that comes from uh, being what we we call confessional. Being confessional simply means that you and I confess the same faith together. This is why we confess our faith together every Lord's Day uh, during worship. Sometimes we confess one of the historic creeds the Nicene Creed, uh, for example. Uh, Sometimes uh, we confess from the Westminster Standards. This morning we confessed our faith together from the Heidelberg Catechism. And, you know, we read these together because they are summaries of what we believe together. It's not just what you believe personally and, and what I believe privately, but it's what we believe as the body of Christ. And so we confess and acknowledge our faith together and we do it out loud so we could hear each other confessing and acknowledging that we have the same mind, the same convictions about God and about the faith. See, we are showing in our confession together that we have that same mind. Secondly, Paul says another aspect of our shared faith that reveals our unity is that we have the same love. We have the same love. And what the same uh, love that Paul is referring to here is our love for God. That you and I love God. Why? Because God has changed our affections toward him. God has given us, you and me, a heart that now can love him, that now clings to him. You know, at one point, at one point each of us were enemies of God. We read in Scripture 
hating God and, and loving sin, but by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, he changed our hearts. He changed our affections so that we now love him and hate our sin. We read this very truth in 1 John chapter 4, beginning at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might love, uh, live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love, we read there, is perfected in us. And so we have the same confession. We have the same love for God that God has granted us. And thirdly, we see in Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, uh, we are those who live in full accord. Now, the idea of our being in full accord speaks of our living in harmony with uh, one another. See, it's not just having the same mind and the same love, but it's also now actively caring for one another. That's the idea behind living in harmony. It, it has the idea of being in fellowship, of, of seeking the same goals, of desiring the same things for each other and uh, for our church. Now, one translation of this verse puts it this way. It says that we work together. We work together with one mind and purpose. You know, this is why we as a session of elders, we put together a brief mission statement for our church uh, early last year. It's focused on, on three things. It's focused on worship, on discipleship, and on evangelism. Our mission statement is printed there in the inside cover of our bulletins, that our mission at Grace is to glorify God by worshiping Him according to Scripture and our Reformed faith, of growing together in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus and spreading the gospel of His kingdom to our neighbors and to the world. You know, friends, what we are saying as a church with that statement, what we are saying is that we are united together, that we are in full accord together. We are, we are working together for the same goals. And so now, how do we live out this unity in our church? We've seen the basis for it. Paul has shown us what it looks like. How do we live this out in our church? This is the third main point of, of the sermon. How do we, as Phil Riken put it, live out our unity until it becomes fully manifest? Paul says in verses 3 through 4, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul begins by telling us we need to guard against selfish ambition. 
Um, you know, as we look at that, we need to understand that uh, ambition on its own is a good thing, right? Uh, ambition is a good drive because it pushes us to achieve, to strive after success, after excellence. It's that, that get-up-and-go kind of energy that we have every day to accomplish uh, and to achieve our, our goals. But notice that, that Paul here speaks of selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, you know, that refers to the desire for gain, the desire for success, even if it means stepping over others, even if it means hurting others uh, in order to accomplish my goals. Selfish ambition is completely me-centered. Paul actually used this same description when he described the preachers uh, that were, he said in chapter 1, verse 17, that were preaching Christ, but were doing so in order to afflict him and his imprisonment. They were probably jealous of, of Paul's recognition among the churches, and they wanted to have the same fame as, as Paul did among the churches. And so they spoke negatively about Paul in order to build themselves up in the eyes of others. That's selfish ambition. That's me-centered ambition. You know, when we, an example of this is when we gossip about people in the church. You know what we're doing there is we are seeking to tear down their reputations in order to build up our own reputation, to build ourselves up. That's completely selfish. It's completely self-centered. And closely related to this is the idea there of conceit in verse 3. Conceit, you know, it's the idea of vain glory. It's seeking glory, but it's glory that is vain, that is not lasting because, again, it's not focused on God, but it's focused on, on ourselves. And so what's the opposite of this? What's the opposite of selfish ambition and vainglory or conceit? Paul explains in verses 3 through 4, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, the opposite of selfish ambition and vainglory is humility. And uh, humility uh, means seeing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness, having that right attitude of who we are before God, and then understanding the grace that we have been shown by God, that we did not merit that grace, that he has graciously given it to us in Christ. And then out of that understanding of who we are in relation to God, because of his grace, grace that we did not merit, then out of that understanding, loving and serving one another. You know, it's like Paul's assessment of himself. You recall Paul's assessment of himself in 1 Timothy 1, verse 15? I am the chief of sinners. But, you know, Paul, when he confessed that of himself, he didn't cower away in a corner But what he said is he knew, you know, I've been shown love and grace and forgiveness by God. Now I'm going to show that same love, that same grace, and that same 
forgiveness to others. That is what humility looks like. And loved ones, this is, this is the cure-all for all disunity. It is humility. It is a, a community of Christians who look out more for the interests of others than for their own glory, than for even their own comfort. You know, one example that we might consider this morning is the idea of uh, Christian freedom. Right? Uh, you know, we, when we uh, profess faith in Christ and when we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we realize that we have the freedom to now enjoy uh, many things that perhaps we felt we could not enjoy before. But the Bible says that we are not to use our freedoms in a way that hurts our brothers and our sisters. See, we are pr- perfectly free to do so according to God's word, but we must always take into account those around us. Asking questions like, you know, is my brother or my sister in Christ going to be scandalized by what I'm about to do? I'm perfectly fine with it. My conscience is free, but what about them? Will they be hurt by what I'm about to do in any way? You know, that involves not looking to our own interests, our own comforts, but it involves looking to the interests of others. Another example might be that, uh, you know, I, you might say to yourself, I don't, I don't want to participate in church life events. Um, after worship, I, I just I want to go home, uh, not stick around after. Uh, and certainly, you can forget about uh, church parties and picnics and things like that, uh, Bible studies. I don't want to do any of those things. But friends, I want to remind you uh, this morning that by participating in church life, you're looking to the interests of others. You're showing humility, right? Uh, not just to your own interests. Because we are all built up. We are all encouraged when we, together, when we are together, when we are fellowshipping together. And, and by showing up, you're looking not to your own interests, but you're also looking to the interests of others. And as we'll see in the following weeks, our Lord Jesus perfectly modeled the humility that you and I are to show to one another. We see that he, throughout his life, was the pattern of humility because Jesus' ministry was one of service to others. He served us. He served us by living a life of obedience, living under the law. He served us by dying for us on the cross. He served us by placing our greatest need first. It was the problem of our sin. And we read in the gospel that this sin that corrupts our nature, that that blinds us, that brings about eternal death, he came as a servant to bear that sin for you and for me, to bear our burden in order to free us from sin's power and from sin's dominion. So we say this morning, as a church united in him, all praise and all glory be to God alone. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the many blessings that we have received in our union with Christ by faith. We thank you for our church and for the blessings that we experience in our fellowship with one another. 
We pray this morning that you would grant us greater unity and each of us more humility as we look to Christ, our great King and Savior. Lord, write your word now upon our hearts and be with us this week as we each seek to do your will and to give you glory and thought, word, and deed. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.